0: So this year at Lent, we made a decision together to not simply give up chocolate or give up bread or wine or something, but to experience with a a more robust fast, you might say, and that is to do what we could, forming habits of grace that would help us give up hurry. So we've been examining the, the things over Lent that push our lives into hurry. We've looked at things like noise, desire, Ambition. Last week we took a look at our culture of outrage. And this morning we'll look at the notion of anxiety. So, why did we make this choice to pursue an unhurried Lent? It's because hurry is a fundamental problem for modern followers of Jesus. Hurry hinders our ability to pay attention, it thwarts our being present to God and noticing God and others. And this lack of attention, in turn, makes consistently loving God and loving our neighbors almost impossible. There's a line from the Great Litany in the prayer book that says, God, may it please you to give us hearts to love and worship you and to keep your commandments, and note these two words, with careful attention. So I think we all can feel this, that anxiety and hurry feed on each other. I saw a post this week that said, me... Not caffeinated, anxious. Me, caffeinated, anxious, but faster. <laughs> I was walking through an airport sometime a few weeks ago, and you know, there was some magazine rack, and I noticed this, this uh, big picture of Guy Fieri. You know him, the sort of Food Channel guy with the spiky blonde hair? You know, all the tats on his arm. So it was very clear it was Guy, and Debbie and I watched some of those shows. So I saw it, and it was Entrepreneurial Magazine. And the the screaming headline of the magazine was, How to Do Everything. And the article says how Guy is insanely busy, how he's in a million places at one time, how he's obsessive about his hyper-detailed agenda. And this isn't a criticized Guy. I'm sure he's a, a wonderful guy. What got my attention was the mindset and the invitation that underlies that screaming headline, how to do everything. I actually can't think of a more powerful idea for driving someone into hurry. Fast Company. Did you note the title of that magazine? Fast Company? It's a business magazine, been around, I don't know, 15 years or so. There was an article in there I saw that said that the typical professional with a smartphone interacts with work an average of 72 hours a week. The article goes on to say that this hyperconnectivity has stolen our attention, caused us to lose any sense of boundaries, it puts us in a constant state of fight or flight, and it's ruining our health. This week I noticed a, a really fun picture. It was a, like a what do you call those signboards outside of a outside of a really fancy shoe store in San Francisco, and the signboard, the little triangle sign said, or, you know, the tripod sign said, life is short, buy the shoes. (laughs) Well, there's a a young, well-known English uh, Swiss writer, John Harry, who tweeted about this saying, this is a perfect expression of junk values. Take people's deepest fears and direct them towards meaningless consumption. In reality, you're gonna die. Don't waste your life on beep like this. You can fill in the beep. Henry Nowen's a little more subtle. Henry says, we seek unconditional surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we seek it so that we're not drifting along passively accepting society's views and values. For they, he says, form a dangerous web of domination and manipulation. Bringing all sorts of social compulsions creating in us false selves that we seek affirmation by living through false values. Well, the New York Times recently had an article called An Anxious Nation. It was quoted in a Psychology Today article I saw, and the name of that article was The Anxiety Epidemic. And the the article meant to say that anxiety is now becoming to seem like a sociological condition, not just a personal one that we increasingly have this shared cultural experience that feeds on the alarmist cable news graphics and metastasizes through social media. So you just? I want you to just begin to feel the anxious water that we swim in every day. Another article I saw this week suggests that smartphones are the major contributor to the dramatic increase that every poll and study is showing that we have in anxiety. You know, when you're texting, and you see on your screen those little dots in like the little bubble, I looked that up. That is called a typing awareness indicator. And there have been tests done where they sit people of all ages, this is just not 14-year-old kids, they sit people of all ages and get them looking at those little blinking dots on on the, the text screen, and they actually raise anxiety. Just those dots, they raise people's blood pressure the pace rate of their heart goes up, and they can measure anxiety just looking at those dots. Like, what's he thinking? How will she answer? What if she hates me? What if she's not typing to me at all? She's typing to someone else. I mean, right? It's just the anxiety that raises in us. And more seriously, just begin to consider all the human pain caused by anxious, hurried, out-of-control inner lives that spill over to our loved ones with anger and yelling and cussing and belittling and shaming and shunning. Now, when we get into this, I want to assure those of you who feel guilty about moments of anxiety and, and have had people say to you that anxiety is a sin and that sort of thing, yeah, of course, I'm sure you can sin with anything. Uh, you know, you can sin with a screwdriver or a hammer. I'm sure, you can, I'm sure you can sin with anxiety. But I don't want you to carry around in you that anxiety is fundamentally something that you should feel guilty or shame-ridden about or be living in hiding because of it. I want you to think of it as just a human reality that we sometimes experience. And as we do, we bring it to our wise and gracious and loving Father as we try to cultivate an inner self in which anxiety doesn't rule us. That's what we're shooting for. So just banish shame. This is a no shame place. But I would encourage you to just begin to ask why. Like if you're noticing a lot of anxiety, just ask the Lord, Lord, I'm discipling myself to you. I'm apprenticing myself to you. Why is this happening? And just begin to gently pull things back until you get to the underlying cause. And when you get there, I promise you, you will find your heavenly Father both with a smile on his face and with deliverance. Just You just need to do it. Just gently ask why. Well, our text this morning revealed to us a non-anxious and hurry-freed way of life that's rooted in an uncompromised trust in God for those who seek it. So if you look at me, uh, look with me in your bulletin at Psalm 23, While you're going there, I'll remind you that in our adult discipleship class, for the last number of months, we've been studying Dallas Willard's, uh, it's not really a commentary, but his sort of comments on Psalm 23 in his book, Uh, Life Without Lack. And so I want you to hear these words as the lived experience of David. And David, in the context of what was a very challenging and consequential life, A life that had times of deep pain in it, but nevertheless, this is his experience of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. That is to say, I'm in the care of another who will provide all that I need. I don't have to be in charge. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is David's way of saying, I'm full and content. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. This is a picture of healing and integration. And though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil. And this reveals David's robust confidence in God. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. This is David saying, I know the comfort of God's presence, of his strength and his protective care. And your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. This is a picture of the abundant life that David knew and that is now available to us as apprentices of Jesus in kingdom living. Well, our passage in Matthew, our gospel reading this morning, I think essentially reveals to us the mindset of Jesus that he knew he was living in a God bathed world. Again, it didn't mean that he didn't have moments of pain, perhaps of confusion, maybe of disappointment with some of his followers, of people who didn't respond to his teachings and healings. But that was all sort of happening against this backdrop of knowing that he lived in a God-permeated, a God-bathed world. And so what we see again in Matthew 6 is not meant to be religious guilt-producing things. This is Jesus talking about his experience with his father. And... Jesus' experience of his father was one of a dynamic sense of God's goodness and his provision. And it's from this wisdom that Jesus says approximately 15 times in different words in the New Testament, he says, put my words into practice. Now you can hear that as bad dog. You're not putting my words into practice. Shame on you. Or you can hear it as If you could see what I see, if you could know what I know, you would put my words into practice. This is what's real. This is a God-bathed world. Yes, it's got pain and suffering and injustice and racism and economic injustice and healthcare issues and all the things that scream at us every day in our news feeds. Yes, we don't deny that. We just simply say that exists in a God-bathed reality in which humanity remains God's project. And his purposes for it will come to conclusion. So again, when Jesus says, don't be anxious, this isn't meant to produce guilt. It's not a religious moralism. It was a revelation into reality. It was an invitation into a new kind of life. So when Jesus looks around and says, look at the birds, he just simply means worries unnecessary. When he says, look at yourself, can you add anything to your life? He's just saying worries unproductive. When he says, look at the flowers, he's just saying anxiety produces less than faith does. So again, the point here isn't religious, legalistic moralisms to make us feel guilty. The point is that creation, birds and flowers, reveal both the power of God and his ongoing provision. And this is what we might come to call a God-shaped cosmology. You know, versus a David Attenborough-shaped cosmology. I'm not picking on David, but you feeling me here? So a cosmology, a God-shaped cosmology, says something like that what exists came from a personal God, and it will be sustained by this God, and it will achieve the purposes God set for us. But here's the rub. Outside of the embodied, intuitive, confident knowledge of that, outside of the safety and sufficiency of God's kingdom, we come to the obvious conclusion that we have to protect ourselves. And that leads to all manner of defensiveness, to being too frightened and angry to really love others. It leads to hurry and the underlying anxiety that drives it. But in contrast, learning to live under God's good governance, seeing that this is a God bathed world, it frees us and it makes us secure and it empowers us. I love the way Eugene gets this in the message where he says, "I'm not. what I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax. Whoever thought you'd hear the word relax in the New Testament? Thank you, Eugene. What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over food and clothes, but you know both God and how he works. So steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provision. In the passage on seek first, Eugene has Jesus saying, give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up. That's his translation for be anxious. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. So I think we just need to set aside that there's available to us in life some sort of magic formula that gives us mastery over our future or over God. Neither David nor Jesus would say that life has no troubles or problems or concerns. They wouldn't say that there's no fear in life or no no alarming news. What they would say to us and what these passages say to us this morning is that we're invited into a relationship, a realm, a dominion, that transcends them and makes meaning of them. Doesn't mean they don't happen. It means that we live in a reality in which the meaning attached to them can be something different. Now, as we come to our quiet time this morning, our reflective time, I'm going to read over you the first lines of the general thanksgiving from the Book of Common Prayer. And as I read these couple of lines over you, I want you to just bring yourself to stillness and allow these words to wash over you to wash over your body, your soul, your spirit, heart, mind, your will, your feelings. And as you take these words in, I want you to notice how when setting your mind on thankfulness makes you feel settled and unhurried and how hearing words of thankfulness and aligning your hearts to them, it banishes anxiety. Accept, O Lord, our thanks and praise for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the splendor of the whole creation, for the beauty of this world, for the wonder of life, and for the mystery of love. I'll take in a bit deeper here, maybe noticing the one phrase that the Spirit wants to work with you on. Accept, O Lord, our thanks and praise for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the splendor of the whole creation, for the beauty of this world, for the wonder of life, and for the mystery of love. Now, finally, let's say these words together. You repeat after me. Accept, O Lord, our thanks and praise for all that you've done for us. We thank you for the splendor of the whole creation, for the beauty of this world, for the wonder of life, and for the mystery of life.